Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Hello, welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid, founder and CEO of MSH Talent and Technology Solutions. Today, I'm really excited to bring on our guest, Brian Carlson. Brian is the former founder and CEO of eThink Education, a learning platform. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you, man. This is uh, only my second one. So if I make any mistakes or any issues, just you know, touch your nose, do something to let me know, okay? <laughs> I'm sure you'll do fantastic. I'm excited. I appreciate it. So listen, the way we like to start off is that you know we want to demystify a lot of different companies and roles and corporate America in general. So I, I want to start mm-hmm. off by asking you a little bit about your role as a founder and CEO and maybe just a quick story on how eThink Education came about whether you had partners, and then kind of a little bit about that journey. Sure, absolutely. eThink Education was a SaaS-based company that provided learning management solutions for, it started with colleges and universities. So what that meant was that we would, basically, we took an open source piece of software that was freely available called Moodle, and we took that piece of software, and then we added things to make it more customizable for colleges and universities. That's where we started. Prior to starting the company myself, and then I did have a founder, a co-founder with me, Cheryl Patsavos, we both worked for a higher education software company, which is where we met. We saw that there was an opening in the market to get on the learning side. We were more in the administrative software side when we were at our former employer. So we both left, we founded the business, and we began providing these learning management system services around a SaaS-based platform to starting with colleges and universities. And that's basically how we got our start. All right. So I want to dive into this a little bit because I find this stuff fascinating. So you were CEO of the business. How did that conversation go with Cheryl? Was that a very natural thing? Is that something you ascended to or help me understand? Today's focus is, is about hiring and higher education. We were in uh, higher education for, uh, you know, spelled a little differently than the name of this podcast, which I, I happen to love the <laughs> name you've come up with for that reason. But yeah, it came up very organically. You know, you talk about hiring and your first person you're going to hire if you're going to have a, a partner is your is your business partner. So for me, that was you know a very lucky situation that we knew each other for about six years prior to starting the business. So I had a lot of experience with her to what she was great at and then versus what I was good at. They complemented each other very, very well. I was more on a sales mentality, strategy, marketing, things like that, growing the business. She was much more operational focused, and that was a great balance for the two of us. So we we certainly learned how each other worked at our past employer, which was called Illusion. Uh, it's now called Illusion. At the time, it was called SunGuard Higher Education, but that morphed into what's now known as Illusion. And that's where we met, and that's where we essentially got our start decided to leave that business and then start something that was essentially complementary to what we were doing for Illusion. Yeah, fantastic. I'm always really intrigued by the journey of the entrepreneur. So were you like at eight, nine years old having lemonade stands and and being an entrepreneur? Was this something that kind of came about later in life for you? I did. I had all those things when I was young. I had the five cent lemonades, you know, nickel for lemonade, my grandpa's front yard every single summer. uh, He built me a 
lemonade stand. I, it's funny you, you bring that up because that was one of the one of the things I got started in early. I had you know lawn mowing businesses. I you know got into all sorts of different things. So I was always kind of entrepreneurial in nature. Always enjoyed that. Okay. Well, I imagine the uh, the SaaS business is a little bit more complex and nuanced than say a lemonade stand. <laughs> I want to demystify that for our listeners. Can sure. you tell us how a traditional SaaS company makes money? How do they get revenue? And everybody talks about how wildly profitable they are. Can you explain why that why that is as well? Sure. I mean, so why they're wildly profitable is because they have recurring revenue. So you're typically taking a piece of software, you're either developing that software on your own and you're building it from scratch and you're putting it on servers and then you're having your clients connect through the web to get to that piece of software. Traditional software going back 20 years ago was usually client server. So you'd show up a lot of times physically at the location, there'd be a server room, you'd physically install the software, and then you'd go sort of room to room and start installing clients that would sit on the actual desktop of the users and that would connect in the local network over to the software. That changed considerably over the last two decades to where most software that you're using today is SaaS-based, software as a service. So instead of it physically being located with a database at the actual client site, the client now logs in through the web, typically to, to Amazon or maybe Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services is what everybody knows. It sits usually on that. You know That's certainly the dominant player right now. You put that software there, then people connect through a web browser instead of an actual client application that's physically installed and then physically updated on the client's PC. So that's what software as a service is, is essentially connecting through the web to a central set of servers. And why that's so beneficial is for the client, they don't have to update things. So the client doesn't have to update the software continuously. The maintenance costs are significantly lower. Also, when an update comes out, the creator of that software, the provider of those services can then just automatically update on your server for you without having to physically be there at your location. Traditionally, you had to many times show up physically in a client, in, a, in an older model client server where you'd show up physically, go literally room to room to do all these upgrades. It was, it was absolutely, you know, very labor intensive. So SaaS-based solutions have radically changed that. Now, why it's good for us when we were doing this and why it's good for you as a company is because it's a very sticky relationship. You actually physically have the servers. If someone doesn't pay you, which you know does occur sometimes, not sure. nearly what it used to, you can turn the server off temporarily. You can say, I'm sorry, you can't access the code until you, you pay up. And if it's a mission critical piece of software, the odds they're not going to pay you has gone down to about zero. And that's different than it was 20 years ago when I first got in the industry. Super compelling business. And so typically they're just paying a licensing fee month to month for the amount of users that they have. And that's something that's just recurring. And I would assume that more often than not, that's growing month to month more than it might be declining month to month. Is that correct? It is. It is. So we were in online education for ours and it was a, a booming sector. So we started with you know colleges and universities and we eventually moved into corporate training to where if you're onboarding new employees, you would use the learning management system that we provided to help onboard those employees, to help continue to nurture them in their journey within the organization for additional learning opportunities that you may be presenting to them with whatever learning plan, training plans you have, you know, you established, you know, maybe over, over years. Also, you know, that sort of service lends itself to additional services. You know, people also need training on how to use the software. So it's a licensing agreement. It's many times 
services agreement, and then customizations. People have different things they need to the software that may not be in the cookie cutter piece of software that you're presenting them. So you may go in there and customize the look and feel to start with. You may customize certain modules. You may build certain content they need that you know is, is again, complementary that's added into the software. That's sort of a layer. You can certainly add other pieces of sort of the ecosystem that someone needs once you establish that SaaS-based relationship with their primary uh, piece of software. Yeah, I'm going to dig in here just a little bit more because I just I just find this so interesting. And, and last question, really, in regards to kind mm-hmm. of the, the company. With regards to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg with Meta and Facebook and Jeff Bezos with Amazon, these guys were technologists, right, that yep. grew into CEOs of technology companies. It sounds like your background was more sales and marketing. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually was on the servers. I, I actually was technical, very technical. And it's a good question that you're asking because what ended up happening was I had a, a founder who was deeply connected into all sorts of different aspects of the business, much like myself. But when we started, at the time, my past experience was much more technical than hers. I think I always had an ability to translate the technical very well with clients, which lended itself to being more sales. But I think you know, my background prior to that had almost all been technical. When we got into the business, we quickly sort of realized that her technical abilities complemented my ability to sell. And we we did dabble, you know, she would step in and do demos with me and she was very capable of doing sales. And I would step in and configure servers and, you know, upgrade pieces of software and provide support in the early days. So we both could wear hats that were pretty much across the board, every position, whether it was marketing or sales or administrative or anything really. But we think we found that we really excelled and we enjoyed something that was very complimentary. Her more on operations, me much more on sort of sales, marketing, and strategy, which is very deeply connected in the way you're, you're going about, you know, your, your, sales, your sales strategy is deeply connected into sort of what the overall business strategy is. So we both enjoyed both aspects of it. And I still loved getting on the servers. And I miss it sometimes as I evolved, but as we grew, we realized that, you know, even those weren't really what we really, you know, as we scaled the business, we didn't really get on the servers very much anymore. And I didn't do as much in the way of sales. We had other, you know, new responsibilities, but I did have a very technical background. Prior to that, I was a teacher. So I was always involved in education. I was a teacher solely overseas in a country called Vanuatu. I taught for two years on a group of islands in the South Pacific until as I like to joke, I was voted off those islands uh, and, and sent home. So. <laughs> wow, oh, that's amazing. I had no idea about that. That's incredible. And one of the couple of takeaways I'm going to get take away from there for any of our burgeoning entrepreneurs out there is, one, if you go into a partnership with somebody, make sure that you both have complementary skills because that's really key, obviously. Huge. And then two, versatility for every entrepreneur is super important because at the beginning, you're taking out the trash, you're the lead salesperson, you're the lead delivery person, yep. you're getting the vendor set up and all the different things. So you have to be highly, highly versatile to be successful as an entrepreneur. You agree with both those statements? Yeah, not only do I agree with them, I think that when you look at the sort of culture you're building, if you come from that background or that mentality where you have A, the ability to do everything, including taking out the trash, but you enjoy doing everything and you enjoy sort of getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves, if you will, for me personally, I think, and and I think my business partner, Cheryl, would agree, that was definitely one of the ingredients that we had for success was that we enjoyed that. And then the culture that we built, I think our, our employees saw that we we certainly had been, we used to joke, you know, or say, you know, we've, we've literally done everything that you are doing, you know, so we know what it's like. 
And I think that gave us a lot more credibility and a lot more empathy, understanding of what they were having to go through as they took what we did and then sort of scaled it and built it up even bigger than when we did it sort of individually. Yeah, something I read that really stuck out to me about being an entrepreneur and why a lot of them don't end up working out is that many have the idea or the mind for it. And a lot of them have the desire and the heart for it, right? But what they Mm -hmm. don't have is the stomach for it. Because you and I both know there are some major ups and downs. And to be able to stomach that, especially like me, I had just started a family when I first opened the business. You have to be able to deal with some real uncertainty and have a, a, a real tight gut about that kind of thing. So I don't know if you've ever heard that that saying before, but that really stuck out to me as something that's really important for any entrepreneur. It really is. And people don't understand how you know serious the stress can get or how you know how much you end up having to stomach when things really do get stressful. There were times you know, we had sort of made a pact to each other. And I believe that pact very much that we would never quit on each other. And that became very important. If I'm being very honest, throughout certain, you know, years that was, you know, we had, we had difficult moments where the stress or things, the market changed in ways we didn't expect. And we had to sort of roll with punches that added a lot of stress. You know, we're both humans and we both have personal lives outside the business. And sometimes the business would be maybe more than we expected. We both had the stomach, and I think we both had also made a pact to each other, which I think without the other person, I don't know that it would have been, it would have been a lot easier to quit or to pull back, but you always had that feeling that you owed, you know, we're in this together, you're working really hard, I'm going to work just as hard, and we pushed each other, I think, to get through those and stomach some of the tougher parts of that journey, which, you know, there, there certainly were quite a few. A partnership is like a marriage in a lot of ways. And that commitment is sometimes the thing that actually keeps you through those tough times. I remember back in 2011, right? Literally the first couple of years of the company, I made zero dollars. I had to live off of my savings. I had a wife and a newborn baby daughter at home. And all I could afford to eat for lunch was a 99 cent cheesy cheeseburger from Wendy's. And so in terms of the stomach, my stomach was growing as an entrepreneur, but not really in the way that I wanted it to. So that, that those times can be some that you look back on and say, wow, I can't believe that I made it through that. And it really kind of drives you going forward. Or it can be a reason that if you haven't made that commitment to somebody else, that maybe you kind of pull the parachute and pull the ripcord and jump out, right? So really yep. appreciate you jumping back into that. People are going to start to think this is an entrepreneur podcast. I got to take it in a different direction because we're, we're, we're all about the hiring here. So at Ethink, okay, at the yep. largest size of the company employee base wise, what did you have? We got to about 42 was the biggest before the merger with uh, Learning Technologies Group. Okay. So certainly a lot of hiring. As a CEO, were you the type of CEO that had to be involved in every hire or did you delegate that to a team eventually or how did that work for you? Great question. I mean, early on, the first couple of hires, very involved. I mean, my very first hire, it was essentially, I was the one face-to-face with that person that turned out to be our our sales leader that uh, his name was Randy Jones. He went on to, he started as a rep, then became a director, then became our VP of sales and eventually moved over into VP of, of strategy and partnerships. And then we had another person that he had brought in that took over as VP of sales. So he sort of evolved through and grew through the business. So that was our first hire. Second and third hires, Cheryl and myself were both very involved in those because one was uh, in charge of our support desk. So we were turning that over from Cheryl over to to a woman named Claire. Claire took that over and we knew her from a customer. So that was very helpful. And so those were relations we already had. And then another person was in charge of our implementations. That person we knew very well, his name was Todd. And then the next person after that was finally the person who was able to start taking off the hiring out of Cheryl in our hands, which was uh, her name was uh, was Kara Volpe. Kara essentially built 
now Kara Conger. She just got married. She essentially became, first she did admin work for us, then evolved into sort of jack of all trades, eventually became our director of, of all HR and everything administrative. She put together sort of our hiring framework and our hiring processes that made it so that we were no longer the first line of hiring. So once we got those first four in the door, then those four also became sort of the ones that would hire for their departments and be the first line of sort of does this person fit or not and sort of build the framework that we would use for for future hiring. Fantastic. We're going to get into Kara's work in a little bit because I want to hear about the hiring strategy at the company. But, you know, you saying that had me thinking of something. I just another thing for, for burgering entrepreneurs to think about, man, how important are those first one or two or three hires. And I'll tell you, at the time, you don't necessarily look at that way. I mean, when somebody says, oh, you're going to accept an offer? You want to work here? Like you're just so excited to get somebody to join the company, join the cause, right? And you really, I mean, there's a lot of luck involved in it. You have to get the right people because the right people really set your culture. They set your tone. If they're in sales, they set what your client interactions are like. I mean, that stuff's so critical. So looking back, I mean, I think we got a little bit lucky and I think we got a little bit, it was a little bit serendipitous. I think there was a little bit of intention behind it too. But yeah, those first few employees can just really make or break your company. So great call out there. If you had to say that you had a overall hiring philosophy for people that you wanted to bring into eThink, what would you say that was? We eventually landed on one that was very successful, and it was pretty simple. Hungry, humble, smart. That was introduced to me by a gentleman named Josh Jerkovic. He had read a book. I think it was called The Ideal Team Player. It's relatively popular. That was a big part of our framework. We ended up getting a series of questions that were sort of the different team members when they did the interviews would all look to that guide. Everyone who's doing interviews usually read the guide. It was a two-page guide that sort of summarized the book if they didn't have a chance to read the book. And I think that that was a big part of our framework. It just sort of naturally fit who we were. A buddy of mine had looked at our company and met a lot of the people in the company and said, there's something about the way you guys hire. Everybody seems to have the good person gene. And uh, his name was Sean, who who kind of coined that, who came in and, and said that about our group. We all felt pretty complimented with that because I think we took a lot of pride in realizing that the people we had around were just such good quality people. But I think at the root, it came down to those three qualities that we ended up being very deliberate in hiring for, which is humble, hungry, and smart. I love that. You know, Google has something similar. They go the other direction, though. No assholes, right? And so you have the good <laughs> yeah. people gene. Google has no assholes. I'm interested right. particularly about hunger. I mean, I got to imagine a lot of people coming to interviews and they're hungry. They want the job. They want to show you their appetite for it. But you don't always get that hunger to last and sustain once they're at your company, right? How would you kind of vet that out in an interview process? I can't imagine you were 100% with it, but I, I had to imagine there was tactics you would use to kind of understand how hungry is this person? Oh, absolutely. A couple tactics we used. One of my favorite questions to ask, I like to set the tone on interviews to be very conversational at first. You know, get them talking about just, you know, no real specific direct questions, but just get them talking about their background. But then, you know, at some point, as they got more comfortable, I always, I know anyone who's ever interviewed me probably remembers this. I like to ask for better or worse, and it was, there was no right or wrong answer, but I'd like to ask them how many hours they worked per week and just to get a sense of it. And that usually gave me a pretty good indication. I mean, you can say you work 40 hours, but it, you know, on the dot, you know, no one's going to tell you that exactly on the interview, but the way people go about describing their answer to that question and, and, and how they, you know, how much passion they have behind what they're doing and what they've done in the past, that a lot of times can, kind of can indicate for me whether they're going to have that kind of hunger. But I will say you're right. That is definitely the hardest to identify. 
But as everyone likes to, you know, the most famous hiring phrase I think there is, is hire slow, fire fast. If they did not have that hunger, we had a way of identifying it usually within the the first week of onboarding. And we did make some immediate fires by the end of that first week based usually on hunger. There was was a couple that we missed the mark and then it was usually hunger related. Yeah, I can't help but put myself in the position of being interviewed by you, Brian, and and how I would answer that question. And uh, it's going to sound so cliche. I had to actually think about how many hours are there in a week. I think my answer is 160 because even when I'm talking to my wife and kids, I got some work stuff going on in the back of my head. I'm dreaming about work. I'm actually here in office hours. I'm in work. So, you know, it's something that is not far removed from me. I don't even really demarcate between personal life and professional life. Like those things are pretty tightly integrated because I have a hell of a time at work. I love the people we work with and I have a, I, I would look at that as a really enhancing part of my personal life. But then again, when I'm at home, you know, if I need to respond to an email, if I have to pick up a call, if I have an employee that needs something, I'm not setting hours like that. So I guess my answer is 160. How would you have taken that answer? Would that have been a good one? Or you'd be like, this guy's full of it. (laughs) I I think that's a great answer. I mean, I think that you're looking for excitement. You're looking for that kind of, you know, because at the end of the day, you just want a a small indication that you think they have the hunger. But then at the end of the day, it comes down to you and how well you're getting them excited about the mission and the culture. And, you know, I had a lot of people come in that would say things like, this is the hardest I've ever worked for any company ever because they enjoyed it because the team, you know, camaraderie was so strong and they didn't want to let the people next to them down. So once you get that culture built and then you're just fitting new pieces in, I think you can take someone with hunger and then amplify that to them being extremely successful. But if you're not, you know, if you're bringing someone who's hungry and they get in and they're just not buying, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, that's on you, you know, that's on you as a leader that you haven't created the right environment to foster them and to get them to be excited and grow. A million percent. And I think that sense of accountability as a leader and as a founder is very important. And here's the secret of getting people engaged and working hard and having low attrition. It's A, hire people that people respect and like to work with without fail. Make sure that you have your organization completely stacked and filled with people that Mm -hmm. you'd love to be in a car ride for with six hours and that you respect the hell of because they bring something to the table or have some level of intellect that really contributes to the company. So that's one, because everybody, I mean, when you got to go to work, when you got to go anywhere and you don't want to be around the people that you're around, that's going to demotivate you, even if you're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So that's the first key. And the second key around it is you've got to make sure that you have an environment where people are feeling they can be their best selves. So they're getting an opportunity to be empowered and have the tools and the capabilities to get them what they want to get done and that they're not working hard around things like politics and bureaucracy and boring meetings that they shouldn't be a part of. Nobody wants to work hard like that. But if you throw a great challenge in front of somebody or solve a great problem for a customer or we got to come together in an uncertain time and put together a great solution, I think that's the type of work people really love the hard work that people thrive on. And that's what gets you up out of bed every morning. And if you can create an environment where you get rid of that bureaucracy and politics and create an environment where people are feeling like their work is impactful and it it matters, I think that's the key to keeping people engaged. It really is. It's interesting. You know, I'll say this in regards to that, that I think you'll find kind of interesting. When we started the business and people used to throw around, what's your culture? What's your culture? You know, this buzzword of, you know, what's your culture going to be? I'll be frank, I kind of thought it was a little bs You know, I was like, what does that really mean? You know, I've been in some different corporations and I never really thought much about culture. What I learned is that one, culture truly matters, but it's really, it's difficult to just say, this is what my culture is going to be. 
I think that people many times are led to believe by these, you know, entrepreneurial conversations they they get into with other entrepreneurs that you have to set what the culture is going to be. I think that the way you hire ends up defining the culture. And I don't think you as a CEO create that culture. I think you bring in your first, you know, I talked about the first four hires we made with Randy, Claire, Todd, and Kara. Those people ended up being sort of the cultural foundation pieces. And then each time we layered someone on, they built that culture. And then when you're hiring, that's when you can start hiring for culture, when you're realizing what the culture is as defined by your employees. Because if you come in and say, these are our values, these are our, this is our mission, these are the behaviors I want you to say, it just doesn't work. It has to sort of happen organically. So when you talk about about that and being mission driven and all these things that are, you know, your common buzzwords when you're getting into, you know, the world of starting and building a business, I don't know that you always are going to know that until you get the right people and you kind of, you know, feel, you know, you let them flourish, you let them sort of define it and grow and their personalities and the, what they value, that sort of comes out very strongly. And then they're the ones that say, I don't want this person on the team. So when we interviewed, we'd interview you touch a lot of people. You know, we might have you talk to, we might be a company at the time of 20 people and you may have talked to 12 during the interview process, you know, more than 50% of the company because we want the group to all sign off. And if there were disagreements between the group, we would we would hash those out before we made a hire because we knew it was so important in the early stages to building the culture. And one wrong hire, you know, when it comes to fitting the, the culture, it's going to absolutely ruin it for everyone else. And, and then the people take it so seriously if they built it themselves within the company that they are very good at sort of filtering out those people very quickly if they're not going to fit. Yeah. One bad apple can totally ruin the card. And as I think about what you're saying, a CEO and founder can't build a culture by themselves, but they can destroy a culture by themselves. Right. And a lot of that comes from if you say things and then your actions don't follow through because culture is really our behaviors and our behaviors on what we do rather than what we say. So I think that's a tremendously important thing for founders and CEOs to keep in mind that it's just not what you say. It's what you do and what, what you do when you think no one is looking. And by the way, that's great parenting advice, too, because I know my kids, <laughs> I was saying one thing, but doing another, they are going to be following what I do, not what I say. Yep. In terms of interview experiences and memorable ones, good and bad, I want to know one first off where you were maybe interviewing. Any come to mind when I ask you about a memorable interview experience? The very first interview is the most memorable because it was such a big milestone for us. You know, Cheryl and I ran the business as essentially just two people doing everything for about seven years before we started scaling. We did that for a variety of reasons. One is we had really good cash flow just for the two of us. And, you know, we also, the second reason was we weren't convinced that there was a big enough opportunity in the market yet that we wanted to run towards. And there's some early possibilities of acquisitions and things that we entertained when it was just the two of us. When we realized that that's not the direction we wanted to go, the market also happened to change at the same time, opened up a very big hole for us. That's when we decided to start scaling. And it was new to us. You know, we had not done it before. So we were trial by error. We were not backed financially. We bootstrapped the whole business from day one until we had the exit to Learning wow. Technologies Group. Yeah. So we, looking back, you know, I wish I had had some good advice. Maybe a podcast like this would have been nice, you know, to kind of, to kind of, yeah, we really did wing it. So the first one was memorable because what we ended up doing was I took Randy out to a dinner and had some beers and got him loosened up a little bit to kind of see who he really was and got to know him over, you know, over several hours of conversation after we had interviewed him a little bit prior to that. And we really didn't do a lot of other interviews. We had maybe one other candidate we liked that we dabbled with, but, you know, he was the clear winner 
that was memorable just because for Cheryl and I, when we made that hire, it was sort of the beginning of truly scaling a business and learning you know, what that meant and how hard that would be as we continue to do that for about the next six years before the exit. I love it. I love it. In terms of maybe times that you were interviewing, listen, the listeners, the people, they love the bad experiences. Can you think of a bad experience you had? Maybe you interviewing for another company. You don't need to name names, but I just like to know what was that interview like? Why was it bad? Not only bad, but kind of an interesting one. I got brought in for my very first interview when I came back to the States after being in Vanuatu for two years. I got brought into a company called Applied Business Technologies, ABT, that turned, it had about four acquisitions before it became Aleutian. And when I got brought in on that interview, I had about 15, maybe more people, maybe closer to 20 in the room at the same time. They ushered us all in. I've never seen anything like it. They ushered us all into one room. And the guy, uh, his name was Dave Gallagher, was my manager at the time. And he ushered us all into one room. And it was one of those conference rooms with those super long tables, you know, that can just, you know, it goes on forever. Sat everybody down at the table. Everybody sat down. And he said, they made us all look at each other. And he said, one of the 20 of you is going to be hired. The other 19 won't. And we all just looked at each other. No one knew each other. We all brought in the same day. And then he just... He had stations across the, the group, uh, the company, and, and people would go into these different rooms face-to-face. And then at the end, they ushered everybody into one single room with 20 computers. And then we got tested on installing Windows operating system, Microsoft SQL databases, things like that. And that was our aptitude test. And I ended up getting the job, but uh, but that was, that was very, I wouldn't say it was bad, but it was just very unorthodox and intimidating. And I liked it because it was efficient for them. They could compare people really back to back, rule out people pretty quickly. I think a couple people got up and left partway through. They said, this is crazy. You know, it was like Hunger Games or something. You know, they just got wow. up and left before they even did the interviews. They're like, I'm never going to get this. Before they'd even been brought into other rooms, they were just sitting there. A couple guys just got up and said, this isn't for me. That's <laughs> nuts. That is very Hunger Games. Like, it makes me think of another movie. I don't know if you've seen Boiler Room, but I'm getting some oh, real wow. Ben Affleck vibes in terms of bringing all the stockbrokers in and saying only one of you is going to get the job. So. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Yep. But congrats on getting the role. It sounds like it kind of set you up for your future. So who knew that one in 20 chance uh, was going to pay off the way it did, man? So congrats on that. Yep. You mentioned a favorite question earlier. I'd like to ask you if you have another one. Is there any other pet questions you have that you may be asked that you like to, you think gives good insight into somebody? That's a great question. I love making a conversational, as I said. I think that's really important. I like group interviews. So the way we structured it, was that we really did get good at process on how we started to interview. You know, we started tweaking the model over time. One of the big tweaks was as we had more people, we realized it wasn't just the departmental head that should be the one interviewing. It should go to multiple departments. I liked the group interview format because when you have two or three people on your side interviewing one person, you do get the ability to think a lot more as that person is answering certain questions and you can take notes and kind of round robin it. And then you all get the ability right afterwards to debrief and sort of, you know, see if there's any differences in opinion after you've you know interviewed a couple of people, maybe you line up a couple on the same day. So when you do a group interview like that, I like that tactic as far as a question that I like on that in those formats, it's good to get a conversation at the beginning because it's intimidating for that person to have multiple people, but you can play off of each other. But one of the questions I like asking is I like to ask them about, there's a bunch. I mean, there's so many good ones. One of the ones I love to ask, I like to ask them what they don't like about their past role, because I think that's an easy one to see what makes them tick. Sometimes people are too honest and in a way that really does out them as maybe not a good cultural fit. I love to ask them about a teammate 
that they admired and why they admired them. What about that teammate? What do they do really well that they wish that maybe they had the ability to do? Because then you can kind of see one, you're not looking for them to say, okay, this person is so much more talented than me. It doesn't matter. What you're really looking for is ego and a lack of ego. You know, I think the more humble someone is, the more willing they are to just praise their other colleagues they've worked with because I think they realize it's not, you know, it's a team. At the end of the day, you're never going to accomplish anything if you're, you know, if you're very egotistical, no one's going to want to work with you. No one's going to want to be around you. So I think that that's a really important question I used to like to ask. There was a long list. We had a, we had a little list we would, we would sort of formulate and then people would make their own sort of tweaks over time. But those were a couple of my favorites. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Yeah, I love that. Those are fantastic. You know, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the group interviewing. And I'm going to, it's going to segue into the next question I have, but I found that when I'm sitting as a third party, or sometimes like I even think about like those police one-way windows where you can watch an interview opposed to being in the interview, I'm always making better decisions when I am a passive observer rather than getting caught up in the moment. Because when you're having great conversation with somebody, you get lost in that moment. Maybe you're not hearing everything. Maybe you're not catching on to cues that you would, but when you're a little more clinical about it and you can watch their body language, how they receive and, and talk to somebody else there can be real value in that. And you can see some things that maybe you w- wouldn't have otherwise seen. So I'll ask you when you missed, cause I got to imagine you missed on some people that you hired. Oh, yeah. When you look back, what would you maybe have done differently or what you might've missed in the interview that led to that person not working out at your company? It's such a good question because I sometimes don't, we had people that I didn't think would be the, what they ended up becoming, which, you know, some people came in, I thought they might be mediocre and they were just absolute rock stars. So I think it's really, really easy to get biased as to hire people that are like yourself or, you know, I might think that because I had success with, let's say, Randy, who has certain characteristics and sales that are, you know, highly competitive, which is one of his, you know, top characteristics that you want an element of that, but I might be looking for a certain personality trait in someone else that's just like that. What ended up happening is people would come in and be slightly different and then compliment them more and build a team in a, in a more strong way. So I think it's really hard to say, I wouldn't beat yourself up. I, I've heard people say, my job as a CEO is to be essentially a good recruiter, a good coach and a good recruiter. And with that, if I'm wrong, only 70% of the time, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. I've heard some successful people say that. I think that's maybe a little worse than I'd like to think that I've done in the past. Um, but when I've missed It's usually been over cultural fit. And I will say this, when I've missed, it's because I have not, one, had a team approach to the hiring process, number one, right? It was earlier on in the business and we were rushing to get certain hires in the door because we were growing very fast and we did not take the time to get all the different departments involved. So we changed that part of the process. So I think that was one thing that we learned early on. And then the other thing was, I think, when you didn't have dialogue over a person that you know was a consensus, right? You would sometimes have 
you needed to, if there was any doubt, I mean, there's be certain people that was just absolute no brainers. Everybody was like, perfect culture fit. Let's go. Let's do this. No, no brainer. And they, and they worked out great. But then there were other ones where maybe you didn't let the people on that team or, or people that were complimentary to that team have enough of a voice. You know, and they would say, hey, I'm just going to go on the record. I, I remember one person in particular, his name is Jesse, who went on the record and says, I'm going to say, I don't agree with this hire and we're going to see how it plays out. And he ended up being right. So, you know, I think you have to be really careful to listen to everyone's voice on those hires. But when you're in a rush mode, building a business, trying to be fast, sometimes you got to roll the dice, you know, <laughs> sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong, but you got to be able to identify if you're wrong very quickly. And then you go through the very painful process of having to let that person know. You know, sometimes at the end of a first, second day, third day, that I don't think this is going to work out. We made a we made a mistake, and we're not the right fit for you. Is usually how we would frame that if that did occur. And we had a couple of those, not many, but we did have a couple where we felt we missed it pretty big early on. Hiring well is hard, and as much as we're trying to give some advice on this podcast, there's no silver bullets, right? So it's all based on you and the person and your understanding of yourself, and as much as you can glean from somebody in a half hour, hour, two hour interview session, right? Mm-hmm. Last question on the hiring side. Whether somebody gets the job with your company or not, do you think it's positive or important to create a positive candidate experience for them? That's a great question and a fascinating way. We probably talk about an hour on this topic alone, but I'll say that it is your job. That is exactly what your job is as a CEO. They're trusting you with their careers. They're trusting you with their families. They're trusting you to make sure that they're able to grow financially in your company. They're able to grow professionally. They're able to continue to learn. And what you're telling them better be pretty damn close to true or, you know, you're lying to them and, and you're, you're going to be found out pretty quickly. So you have a responsibility to create and foster that person. So we luckily had a team that I think viewed it just like that. And they took a lot of pride in coming together when we had at least a couple times a year when we did the onboarding of new employees, we had everybody collectively fly together meet face-to-face. We were a completely remote company. So you know, we did have some people in Baltimore and we did meet occasionally, but for the most part, the majority of the company was done very remote. And then of course, when COVID hit, that was forced everybody to be 100% remote, even the ones that were in the Baltimore area. So they took a lot of pride in building the onboarding process and taking a, a lot of time. And, and we would go out, you know, make sure we did a lot of social activities as well. We would go out for dinners and really just try to get everybody to know each other. But we worked very hard during those weeks. And that's where we could sort of set the tone, I think was the key thing. That's what uh, Cara Volpe was our HR manager. And she would lead the charge on getting all the different departments to come together. Courtney Bentley was another one we had on our team. She did a phenomenal job creating the training plan for those people. And we have them touch every different department. You know, if you're getting trained for services, you're still going to have an overview of what's going on in the sales world and marketing and you'd meet everyone. And I think that initial getting to meet everyone in the company, getting to spend a lot of time with me as a CEO or Cheryl as the COO or other directors in different departments and getting to know everyone, that's how you break the barriers right away, break the silos down. And I think that's where you start really well. And then from there, you have to continue to foster them, build a culture of learning. There's a number of other things you can do, but it's it's crucial. It's your responsibility as a CEO to make sure they have a phenomenal experience. And if you do that, you won't lose them. If you don't do it, you're going to lose them probably pretty quick. Fantastic. Cara Volpe, I don't think she's ever going to have to interview ever again. She's just going to have to tell people, listen to this podcast. Listen to Brian. He'll tell you what I did. All right. You can hear it straight from the horse's mouth. She got it done. She was the one that helped us vet and, you know, get things moving very quickly. Very, very, very strong, efficient person. 
did some great things. Fantastic. As founders and CEOs, we're only as good as the people that we hire and hopefully play a little part in developing. So I'm totally with you on that. Let's take a little bit of a pivot here because I want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since in terms of selling your company. So you sold your company how long ago? So it's been about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half now. And not going to get into any kind of financial details, but I know it's enough that you were able to take a little bit of a break from work. So I'm interested to know, as somebody that's in a lot of ways living what the American dream is, right? Built your own company and able to kind of decompress and take some time off. What are you doing right now that you're really excited about? It could be something mentally, spiritually, travel-wise, or it could be maybe some work engagements that you took on. But what are you doing right now that's getting, getting you really excited? Two things. On the personal side, I've been traveling quite a bit. I've been traveling across the States, across the America, if you will. I have a travel trailer and a truck, and I've been uh, out there with my girlfriend seeing national parks. And uh, I'll be leaving again next week to meet up with a buddy of mine. We're going to do something called pack rafting, which is where you get these inflatable rafts that you put on your back and you hike out in the wilderness and then come down a river that's hard to you know, access unless you were able Whoa. to hike up there with it. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a new a new sport, a new passion that I'm going to be trying out here uh, about two weeks out in Colorado, doing a couple of rivers in Colorado and then Wyoming. After that, going out to Jackson. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that's on the personal side. On the professional side, you know, I'm in that that sort of evolution, entrepreneurial evolution phase where you're kind of trying to figure out what's next. You know, I had a, a great exit. I'm still connected with a lot of the people in the company, talk to them regularly. I still do some consulting here and there, but I've just been dabbling. I've let myself kind of stay very much open to possibilities. And I think right now I'm in the process of figuring out what's next. Uh, part of that is rebranding, getting back out there, talking to people like you. This is a great first, you know, re-entry into the world of reality, I guess, or, you know, the uh, the corporate reality. And it's yep. just fun. You know, I've been able to talk to a lot of people and you don't realize how many things you've learned along the way until you start getting back out there and having conversations. So yeah, right now I'm just sort of in a process of investing, figuring out where I want to where I want to continue to invest advising, consulting, and, you know, quite frankly, interested in dabbling and maybe some other opportunities here that might be bigger, but taking it slow, taking it slow, I think on the professional side. Ryan, I haven't known you long. We got introduced through a mutual friend, but I'm genuinely happy for you. It's awesome to hear your story. It's some well-deserved time to kind of explore yourself, explore the country and do some different things. And I'm sure that whatever you end up pursuing next is going to be successful. So that's fantastic. All right. I want to look at a old LinkedIn post of yours, if I may. Okay. And I want to ask you what you were thinking when you posted it. So the post is great tips from Tom Papa Moranis on working remotely. And then Tom gets into a little bit about being a remote company and some of the benefits of that. Give me an idea of why this stood out to you, why you decided to reshare this and really what stood out to what, what, what Tom was saying to you. Sure. Yeah. Tom is a buddy of mine who is married to someone who actually used to work for our company. Her name is Brittany. They're good friends of mine. And that post was just an interesting one because obviously we had we had COVID and everybody got very deep in the world of what does remote work life look like? And I think there's probably been more hours dedicated to remote work life culture conversations on podcasts probably than any other topic in the past couple of years. But for us, it was it was interesting because we were kind of already were a remote company for about 80% or a little bit more than that of our employee base which gave us a huge advantage because we could hire from all over the country. And we learned along the way how to build, not just a, you know how to be an individual, but how to hire specifically for remote work, how to build a company that was, I think, innovating in the way that we worked remotely. 
And I think that that's why I, you know, I shared that. It's just a, a topic that was near and dear to me at the time because we were trying to to figure out how to be very efficient as a, as a remote company and as remote in, individuals as everyone was. Yes, I want to follow up on that real quickly. If you had one bit of advice to give a company that's 100% remote, because you have to be intentional about mm-hmm. certain things than you are opposed to when the office, when you can you know, be by the water cooler or see somebody's body yeah. language and things like that. So what's one tip you would give a company that's going 100% remote on how to kind of maintain innovation, culture, productivity, all that good stuff? That's a great question. The number one thing I think, there's a bunch, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is the big one is you have to find innovative ways for people to connect, starting with company meetings. It sounds very basic, but that's your water cooler time. That's your time to connect. And what I've seen most companies guilty of from the companies I've worked for in my past lives here, they're very top down in the way they do these meetings because they had the ability to then go and socialize and be face to face. So we kind of did a bottom up approach in our company meetings, and that worked extremely well to where we would, every single person in the company had to lead a company meeting. And we just rotated and people would volunteer and they would get so creative and so is so many wild and fun ideas on how to create a company meeting. We did them monthly and we would, they would be about an hour and a half on average. We would go around and every different department would have different people, not the same people talking. So it really got your people from other departments. Even if you were as a, as a director of a department had a certain amount of you know normal things you wanted to talk about that were sort of standard, maybe metrics you wanted to share with the company. Having somebody who might be your most junior person be the one to present that is a growth opportunity for that individual. It also gives ability for you to connect with those people that aren't maybe your loudest voices or your current leadership on these meetings. Then what we would do is we would start to find ways to break us out into different, you know, breakout rooms in Zoom. You have to use breakout rooms. That would be crucial. So you break out in groups of five that might be randomly assigned to solve a problem. We would also, in addition to company meetings, sometimes the meeting would be a workshop. We had, for example, we decided to redo our mission statement as a company. Cheryl and I built a mission statement that felt outdated, and it was built by us, not by not by the people within the company. So we did mission statement, then we did values and behaviors. And everybody in groups of four or five got together, built their own mission statement, and then we put them all together and we ended up sort of voting uh, and coming together. And we did that as a remote group. You know, we, those are things we could do. There were other things we did. We did job swaps remotely to where you and I, if we were, you know, in two different departments, would shadow each other for a couple of hours and then we report on that and then present it to the overall company. That was a big one. You have to find innovative ways. Yeah, that was a good one. It really broke down the barriers. You have to find ways to break the silos down if you're going to be fully remote and you want to function efficiently without people not feeling very connected. If you want people to feel connected, that's, you know, a couple of the ways that we were able to do it. There's, There's others, but those were some of the big ones. Hiring advice, remote work advice, stellar movie references. I mean, this podcast has it all. This is incredible. All right. Last question, Brian, and then I'll let you go because I've kept you for a little bit. I want you to tell me if you could amplify one bit of a career advice, one nugget for people early in their career now that maybe you didn't know when you started your career that you wish you did, what would that be? That's a great question. I would say if you're working at a small company at some point, you got to move to work to a big company. And if you're working for a big company at some point, you need to stop and try to work for a startup or something, you know, in the in the relatively small frame. You'll learn a lot of different things by having a chance to do both. 
So don't get too stuck. Make sure you make a switch between those two segments at some point in the first five years of your career. Well, what great advice. I started my career, Fortune 500 enterprise company, then started to move into a boutique firm before starting my own firm. So getting that understanding, learning about yourself and what matters to you and what motivates you. It's not about bad or good. It's just about fit and what works for you, right? That's great advice. I've actually never heard that, but I think it's fantastic because once you get too late in your career and you've been a corporate person your entire career or like a Fortune 500 enterprise type corporate person, or you've been a startup person, I mean, you're branded at that point. And by the way, good luck teaching an old dog new tricks, right? That can be really hard to reframe your mind in the way that you've had success throughout your entire career. And it gives you optionality as you put yourself out there on the market. I think that's that's great advice. Brian, really appreciate the time. You are obviously a, a really sharp intellectual dude and your success is no, no surprise to me or anybody listening. So congrats on everything. Thank you for spending a little time with us and namaste. Thanks so much, Oz. It's, it's great to be one of your first guests. I think this is a really interesting podcast. I hope people find it helpful. I think that uh, if I had had some resources like this early on, I would have listened to them and taken this advice. So I think what you're doing here with creating great content is a, is a big service to put out there to people. So thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it, man. I think you shouted out like 10 or 11 people. So we at least got 10 or 11 listeners. I know where I go from there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.